Welcome to the Artipop podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood, but also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general, to empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love, Kaira van Wijk, to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Happy you're joining us today. This is your host, Kaira. Our very first guest is Danielle Dubois, mother to two-year-old star with another baby on the way, best-selling author and CEO and co-founder of Sakara Life. Originally from Sedona, Arizona, she now lives in New York City. With Sakara, Danielle's in a quest to help heal as many people from within through food as medicine. She's definitely a pioneer in her career with thriving business with an entire female leadership team and the way she goes about life. A few years back, she even sat front row at the show of Jeremy Scott, confidently wearing a breast pump. She's very much into the science behind anything wellness related, and she's an inspiration to many, including Anna. Well, let's dig in. Well, hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Well, thank you. For people, of course, outside of the States who are not familiar with Sakara Life, how would you describe it in a nutshell? We are on a mission to help people feel better and to transform lives through the power of food and lifestyle choices as medicine. So really helping people understand that they can be in the driver's seat of their health journey and, and how they feel for um, in all types of ways. And I think that the modern understanding of how we feel is like, oh, it's based on our genetics or it's based on outside factors. And some of that is absolutely true. But um, I think a lot of the knowledge around how much power we have over our own health and how good we feel has a lot of times been kept from us. So we're on this mission to help people understand how powerful they actually are. Right now, there's so much information out there about health as wealth, basically. But when you started, what was it like to really start? And also, why did you really feel together with Whitney that you really wanted to do this now, even though it was probably a time maybe when less people were that interested in it? Yeah, I mean, we started 10 years ago and nobody knew what plant-based meant. Um, you know, one of our products is we deliver healthy, ready-to-eat meals all over the U.S., and everyone said, you know, nobody's going to want healthy food delivered. People only want, you know, pizza delivered. Mm, interesting. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a lot of naysayers, but yeah, it didn't really deter us because we weren't on a mission to start a business. We were on a mission to share the secret that we had found. Um, eating this way completely transformed my life and my body, and it completely transformed Whitney's life and and her skin, which she had been battling for many, many years. Um, so it was never an idea to start a business. It was, okay, we have found a way to feel really good in our bodies to transform our physical, emotional, mental, spiritual selves mm -hmm. through the power of food as medicine. And we wanted to share that. So we just started, uh, sharing it with one person and then 
one person ate this food and it transformed their life. So they told, you know, three people and then those three people told three people. And yeah. we, we really started that way, like that kind of grassroots way um, because we were just, we felt like if we could impact one life, then um, that was worth it. And now we've been so lucky to impact many thousands of lives and we feel like there are many millions more yet to impact and you really started out of your own kitchen really like cooking everything yourself oh yeah it, it sounds really cute now <laughs> 10 years later yeah. to talk about it but it was really really hard um we were yeah we were cooking ourselves we were delivering ourselves we were the accountants we were the lawyers we were everything. We were the customer service people. So yeah. it was a 24-7 job. But, you know, the one thing that kept us motivated even when things got really, really hard is just knowing that we were impacting lives and saving lives. And we'd get incredible testimonials that would just remind us that this mission is bigger than the two of us, that it's bigger than our discomfort or our exhaustion, that we had to keep going because it was about something so much bigger than just us. Could you talk a little bit more about your personal health journey? Yeah, well, you know, I have a story that many women do. I, at a young age, decided that I wasn't thin enough or mm -hmm. pretty enough or, you know, fill in the blank enough. Mm -hmm. And it started really young. I was about nine years old when I started my first diet. And I have a vivid memory of going to Costco, which is like this big um, chain store here in the States. And um, they have a lot of supplements. And I went to the supplement aisle with my mom and I saw like these diet pills, you know, that promised whatever, three pounds in three days <laughs> and had like a, a photo of a woman measuring her waist, you know, the, the very typical thing. Yeah. And I put it in the cart and tried to hide it from my mom. And the thing about this store is that they sell everything in bulk. So it was, oh, yeah. it was probably like a thousand pills. So it was ridiculous. There was no way I was going to hide it once we went to checkout. And my mom caught me and, and the, I think the sadness in her response to that was the first time I realized that my relationship to my body and to my physical appearance was not healthy and that I had been informed, not by my household, because my mom never really went on diets, never spoke poorly about her body, was never crazy about anti-aging or anything like that. Um, I was informed by my peers and by society and culture that I was supposed to look a certain way and that if I didn't, I wouldn't be valued. Yeah. So from that time on, I, I just hopped from diet to diet to diet in search of, you know, how can I look the way I think I'm supposed to so I can be valued in the world. And um, that meant that food was always the enemy. So, you know, diets teach you that you're supposed to count calories and carbs and points and pounds. And they never teach you how to build a body that you feel really good in, mm -hmm. that you feel really sexy and that you feel really empowered in. Yeah. Um, so by the time high school was over and I was in college, I was really kind of at this all time low because I had never learned how to have that healthy relationship with food. So it was these constant, like vicious cycles of high highs and low lows. You know, if a diet works, you're excited, but you know, you can't only eat grapefruit for the rest yeah. of your life. You end up just, you know, going on this roller coaster that's so exhausting and so consuming. I mean, it consumes most of my, my, my thoughts and my mental capacity. Um, and then on the other hand, I, 
I, my mom was uh, sick in and out of the hospital since I was a little girl. So I witnessed doctors saving her life so many times that I wanted to be a part of that. So I was in school studying pre-medicine, um, working in a hospital with late stage lifestyle disease patients. So everything from um, diabetes, um, heart disease, et cetera, that are diseases that are really based on lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm. And they were so late stage that that we couldn't help them anymore with just changing their lifestyle. It was like now they needed really serious intervention. And it culminated when I did a crazy diet that was probably the craziest I'd ever done. And it was at a retreat and it was 21 days and I did a seven day water fast. So only water, two weeks of raw food and really, really sick and ended up in the hospital myself. Oh, wow. And wake up home. realizing, yeah, just realizing how far I was willing to go. And then that next to witnessing patients who didn't know how to change their lifestyle to be healthier, I decided it was time to change my own and then hopefully help those patients before their diseases became late stage and we couldn't help them anymore. So I went on to study nutrition instead and developed this food program with with Whitney, who I've known since seventh grade, and she was living in the city with me at the time. Yeah. Wow. And we, we created this program, this food program that's based on, you know, nutrition science and the microbiome and understanding the impact of food as information. So not food as calories, not food as, you know, macro, micronutrients, but food as information that is informing your body how to act, react, regenerate, replicate, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then combining that with more Eastern modalities. So understanding the energetics of food, um, how to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, all those types of things. And we came up with this really sophisticated nutrition program that changed our lives. And that's what put it on the path. Yeah. Beautiful. Disordered eating really is in your mind. It's a mental issue, of course. What was your ultimate rock bottom and the key to solve it for you mentally? I mean, I had so many rock bottoms, but the one that really made me change my life was when I ended up in the hospital from a diet. I didn't realize I was willing to go that far. Yeah. You know, and, and it scared me into realizing that if I don't change my relationship to food, if I don't fix this, if I don't learn how to love my plate and love my body and build an empowered body, then I could end up really sick like all the patients I had seen. So how long have you been eating the Sakara way? It's been like a decade then? Yeah, well, probably a little like, yeah, 11 years now, I guess. Yeah. And the amazing thing is that once you start to eat this way and you start to feel the changes and you start to feel really good, it's addicting in the best kind of way. Mm -hmm. Like you're not willing to give up how good you feel for a meal. So you keep eating this way because you just keep feeling better and better. Yeah. And then the more you eat this way, the more you have permission, you know, our, our cookbook is called eat clean, play dirty. You know, this isn't a diet. This isn't like, we don't have a list of things you can't eat. This is really about what should you eat every single day. And once you get the things that you need, you know, if you are out with girlfriends and have some French fries and a martini, like that's okay. It's just that when our food choices are horrible most of the time, we are what we do the majority of the time. So true. where our goal is to help people make the best choices the majority of the time, and then it's a guilt-free zone outside of that. Yeah, 
Makes total sense. I actually also read a book about that recently, about habits, about how really your life is about the habits that you do every day and not about the exceptions, really. So that's also... It's really true. Yeah, it's the same with food, I guess. What you do every day, that really, yeah, makes where you are in life right now. That's what matters. Yeah, and and diets teach you the opposite. Diets teach you that if you fall off the wagon, you failed. Mm -hmm. And it's really toxic um, way of thinking because then you feel guilty um, and you feel like you're a failure and you'll never have the body you want or you never feel as good as you want to feel. Yeah. When in reality, that's not the case. Like there's no wagon to fall off of. It's just life. Yeah. So if you didn't eat well yesterday, eat well today and tomorrow. And then, you know, it's like you can't, you can't let a bad choice get in the way of good choices. So true. And I can imagine it also did a lot for your mental health because as you mentioned before, if you have like disordered eating, it's constantly in your mind. You're constantly thinking about it instead of like other things, like paying attention to other things that you really love or would love to investigate more. Or Yeah. The crazy thing is that the intention is not to be narcissistic and egocentric. It's like you're actually, it's actually like a mental, I would say a mental illness in a lot of ways when we become obsessed um, in an inappropriate way with our, our plate. Um, but it ultimately is this really like self-centric thing of like, I have to fix myself. I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And once you learn how to release that, um, and at Sakara, we talk a lot about when we're so focused on the self, then we don't really get to one, change ourselves and two, help others. So we talk about if you ever feel like you're in a rut and you're so focused on fixing yourself and you're not enough and all of these things that you have to transform that energy and what can you do for others? Because once you do that, you take yourself out of center stage and there's less pressure on your decisions about yourself and your plate and how you feel. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes decisions much easier. And then on the other hand, you feel really good because instead of focusing on yourself and why you're not good enough, you've helped somebody else. Yeah. And that energetic shifts make it much easier to transform your life. Yeah. You already said you were in a medical field as well. And I feel like still in hospitals, they serve such poor food. How do you how do you feel that? Because I feel like you've been working on this for 10 years. Most of us know by now that health, healthy eating, it impacts us so much. But still, I feel like in the medical field, it's still not really there or something yeah it's not it's it's really unfortunate um you know traditional western medicine is really important for trauma so you know if you have to have a c-section or you get hit by a bus or in a car accident or break your leg western medicine is extremely important that's if you're sick it can help you get better yeah. in an acute traumatic, you know, reason for an acute traumatic reason. But in the case that you, you know, just get bloated after a meal or you actually feel okay and you want to stay feeling well, Western medicine doesn't help us. It doesn't help us stay well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Western medicine believes about itself that it does. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. until I think, you know, the, the, 
the culture around Western medicine starts to shift and we start to only rely on it for these like acute trauma-based um, reasons, then it's like the, the focus is on the wrong things. You know, pharmaceutical drugs are really important in certain cases, mm-hmm. but they can also cause a lot of harm. And a lot of people believe that they're overused and misused and that we're not really using the, the natural drugs we have, which first and foremost are food, water, and meditation and stress management. Mm-hmm. And if we can put those at the forefront and kind of make that the foundation, so like the doctor helps you create those foundations before we start to go outside of that. Now, obviously there are, you know, mental health issues, things outside of this realm that I'm talking about. But for most of us that feel okay, but occasionally have issues like autoimmune or gut issues or headaches occasionally, it's like using the power of food as medicine isn't in the central dogma of medicine yet, mm-hmm. um, but it's starting. You know, even in the last 10 years, we've seen a huge shift of doctors really starting to transform how they see their patients. Oh. And, you know, here there's, uh, we have a, a medical board at Sakara, and one of the doctors on it is Dr. Robin Burzen. And she started something out here called Parsley Health, and she's really trying to do just that where instead of going to see your doctor when you're sick, you see your doctor when you feel good and she helps you, you know, change your lifestyle or maintain your lifestyle in a way where you can keep feeling good. And it's really revolutionary here in the States because that's not usually why you go see a doctor. You go see a doctor when you don't feel well. And it's really all about preventative medicine in the end, I think. Mm -hmm. If we eat well every day. Yeah, exactly. If we have like good habits every day, there's like so much you can do for your future self, basically, for your family. Exactly. If in the end you do need intervention, like surgery, pharmaceutical drugs, that's fine. But but surgical intervention and pharmaceutical drugs work better if you have those foundations anyway. Mm -hmm. So... No matter which way the path takes you, um, it's important to have those foundations. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, of course. And I also wanted to ask you about the book and also the the meal program. I think it's mostly plant-based. Does that mean you don't eat any animal products yourself or it's more that you're like, people can just decide for themselves to do that or to not do that? Yeah, so what we found in our research was that most people across the U.S., do not get enough fruits and vegetables. Um, and the daily recommended amount in the in the U.S. is actually quite low anyway. So we believe that people should not only be getting the daily recommended amount, um, but more than that. Mm-hmm. So we decided, and, you know, fruits, vegetables, plants um, are the number one ingredient you need to eat every single day to have a healthy gut, healthy microbiome, Mm -hmm. among many other things, but particularly important for the gut. Um, So when we set out to create the nutrition program, we realized that most people got way more animal products than they actually needed. Mm, Interesting. So we didn't feel like it was something we had to offer. Felt like we had to offer what people were being underserved. Yeah, makes sense. So Plant-based to us means that you base your diet off of plants. So you're mostly having plants throughout your day, throughout your week. And then if occasionally, you know, you want to add a piece of fish or, you know, have a burger or whatever it is that you're craving, that that's your prerogative. 
Um, but that it's not essential to an every single day diet. Yeah, that makes sense. Very few of our clients associate as vegan, even though our program is vegan. Mm. So the beautiful thing is that we're helping people eat more plants, which in turn helps the planet. Um, so it's a win-win. Yeah. Because you're like working with so many scientists, are there any like food myths that you feel like, oh, you see those all the time on social media or anywhere else that you're kind of like, oh, I wish people were like more aware of that? Um, so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'd say a couple of the most popular are one protein that you can't get enough protein from plants. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's very much not true. You can get plenty of protein from plants. You can't get enough protein from plants, though, if you're not eating an appropriate plant-based diet. So unlike a a diet high in animal sources of protein where you have a piece of fish and you might cover, you know, 80% of your daily protein requirements, with plants, because they contain different amino acid profiles, which constitute protein, you have to get a variety of plants Mm. to really be able to get all the amino acids that you need to create complete proteins. So you have to, we call it nutrient diversity. So it's a great thing. And, and, you know, biology is so smart because by getting a diversity of plants, not only are you getting your protein requirements, but you're also getting all those different types of nutrients that you can only get from a variety of plants instead of one plant. Mm. So oftentimes we get people that come to us and say, you know, I already eat this way. I already eat so healthy, you know, I'm still bloated or I'm not losing weight or whatever their goal is. And come to find out, you know, they're eating the same smoothie and the same quinoa bowl and yes, you know, the yeah. same piece of salmon for dinner. And and they're not getting an array of nutrients. And that's critically important to gut health, to overall health. Because what you're getting in different plants, as I said, is different amino acids, but also different phytochemicals that help do various things in the body. So you can absolutely get enough protein, but you do have to make sure you're getting a variety of plants. And I always tell people... You know, there's like that, the cow, but the cow gets the protein from the grass. So yes, true, yeah. if the cow can get the protein from the grass, um, then we can too. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then another one is calories. Um, mm-hmm. There's still this terrible myth that <laughs> calories are calories um, and that they're a critical factor in maintaining a healthy weight and healthy dietary choices. And it's just not true. Um, Calorie in is not calorie out. And some calories are healing where some are quite toxic. So it's actually what you're eating and the quality of what you're eating that is most important when it comes to your overall health and ability to lose, maintain, or or even gain weight. Mm -hmm. Um, So we get this question a lot because we don't share calories here at Sakara. Yeah. And people get very, very, very angry. Oh, yeah, they get anxious <laughs> about it, I think. So I get it because I was that woman. Yeah. So I have a lot of empathy for those people. Um, it's, a, it's a means to control and understand. Um, but what we're trying to do here at Sakara is really set people free. And you shouldn't have to listen to external factors when it comes to your health. Mm-hmm. The... Our, our wish for everyone is that you gain this sense of empowerment and body intelligence that allows you to understand what you should and shouldn't eat. You shouldn't have to 
carry, you know, a list of things you can't have and, you know, your calorie tracker. Yes. The goal and I think the freedom that I was really craving before I started eating this exactly. food was how can I just stop thinking about it all this much? Like it's so consuming. I, I feel like I could speak seven languages if I had <laughs> just used that, that time differently. So my wish is to really free people from this need to, to count calories because um, again and again and again, studies show that the most important thing is to get enough plants, high quality plants, organic, and enough different types of nutrients and healing, quote, calories, that that's the most important thing to, that leads to a healthy body. Yeah, makes total sense. Because you're in the food industry, of course, do you think about food injustice a lot? Like so many people don't have access to healthy food yeah. because they just can't afford it, because the system is just so broken. Um Yeah, is it something you think about as well, also for the future, maybe how you can contribute or it's difficult, but yeah. Yeah, so we have a lot of initiatives and yeah, it's something we think about a lot here at Saqqara. Um, you know, when we started, nobody was talking about it. So mm -hmm. we felt like we were lucky enough to be in the city and, you know, celebrities were some of our first clients. And though that doesn't cover injustice, we felt like that was one of the ways to get it to go mainstream um, mm -hmm. and to help people understand the importance. Now, 10 years later, we've built out several initiatives. So one, we donate thousands of pounds of food to an organization here that donates to um, you know families that cannot afford Um, or like are on food stamps or can't afford necessarily organic food. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really important to us. Second, we have something called the Saqqara Scholarship, which is where we donate thousands of meals over a year to people that have applied for our scholarship. And, um, you know, we choose them for all types of reasons. Some people are going through chemotherapy. And as you said, you know, their choices in the hospital are so awful and yeah. don't equal health. Um, to new mothers who are going through postpartum depression and can barely cook for their families, much less take care of themselves. So we get to impact an entire kind of broad spectrum of people that cannot afford to buy our meals. Mm -hmm. And then third, we do a lot of education. So... Um, you know, it, when we're talking about like ideal health, I believe that's something that every human on this planet deserves, Yeah. but we have to start somewhere. So if I can just get somebody to learn how to make a spaghetti squash instead of ordering, that is also a win. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I think, oftentimes I can find myself having this mentality of like, okay, I just need to transform this person's life. And yes, that is really important to me. And we do that over and over again. Mm -hmm. But there's also this broader effort of helping people understand that you can make really healthy choices that are also simple. So we volunteered at um, various organizations to help educate, you know, as we're donating the food. I remember this one time we were donating a bunch of spaghetti squashes, which is why I bring that up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the line didn't even know what they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. And And so it was so empowering to like teach them how easy it is to cook and in the end, how much it actually tastes like spaghetti. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just helping them understand that it's easy to just grab a couple of vegetables 
and that that can equal a meal. It doesn't have to be kind of this, especially Mm -hmm. American mentality of like vegetable, grain, meat, that meals can look all all different types of ways and, and be very nourishing. Yeah. And at the same time, I feel like unhealthy food can be so addictive. So if you've been eating so unhealthy for so many years, maybe since childhood, it's so difficult to break, I can imagine, you know, like for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's really sad. Yeah. Um, it really impacts like your mental health, huh? I think. And it's not just, oh, it's so diff- addictive. It's, it's actually biochemically addictive. Hmm. And these foods have been engineered to be addictive. You know, the, yeah. a lot of people in the food industry are incredibly intelligent people who are unfortunately using their intelligence kind of against humanity, I'd say. Um, and there are certain things on many things on the, the shelf of your supermarket that are designed to, you know, hit what they call this bliss point, yeah. which is where it tastes really good and it never quite fills you up. So it hits everything in your brain like a drug would. And so you want more and more and more because stopping is like coming down off of a high. And that's from like a biochemical perspective in terms of our brain and neurotransmitters. But then there's also our gut. So every time we sit down to eat, we're transforming all the trillions of bacteria in our gut. And whichever ones, whichever strains kind of take over are the ones that are the boss and that is directly connected to your brain via your vagus nerve and can greatly impact your cravings so it's not just like in the moment that it tastes good and you're craving it but then you've actually changed like the makeup of your gut microbiome so that you'll also crave that same thing later so detoxing from those things is actually really serious and a lot of times, especially on Saqqara, people will feel real detox symptoms if they haven't been eating well. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said before, the good news is that our bodies are incredible and they change so fast. And so it doesn't take long to really start to feel the difference. And the beautiful thing is that if you haven't been eating well and then you decide to do Saqqara for five or 10 days, those are the people that see the hugest transformation because they've made such a drastic change in their dietary choices. So they're the ones that are oftentimes really motivated to keep going. Yeah, you can really impact people's lives actually on a plate. Yeah, it's crazy, but I can totally imagine. Yeah. Quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that Danielle will be speaking more about her own experiences with motherhood, being a working mom, and so much more in the rest of this talk. If you'd like to find out more about her vision and health, we definitely encourage you to follow Sakara Life on Instagram and possibly get their book, Eat Clean, Play Dirty. It's a great way to try some of their delicious healthy dishes, especially if you're not in the US like ourselves. Personally, I'm a big fan of the macro bowls. So when it comes to motherhood, how has it been treating you so far? Have you always wanted to be a mother, actually? That's something you've always, yeah, wanted to do? I think so. You know, I never really was one to say, oh, I have to be a mother. But um, it, it, it came quite easily in a way where, like, I didn't feel like my whole life was uprooted and my lifestyle changed when I became a mother. Like, it felt really natural. Mm-hmm. Um 
And that's one of the other things about the city is like, I felt like the city didn't ask me to change my life. Like, obviously I'm not, you know, my husband owns a club here in New York. Mm-hmm. Obviously I was, <laughs> there were a few things that changed. Um, and I wasn't, you know, necessarily going out late every night anymore. But uh, I brought her everywhere when she was really little, everywhere. I mean, thanks to Art of Pop. Yeah. Um, I brought her, you know, to meetings. I brought her to a board meeting once. I brought her when I was on a panel once. Um, and, you know, I know, like, in some countries, that's much more normal. But here in America, I think that there's, like, this unfair request to mothers and fathers of, okay, when you're home, you're a parent. And when you're at work, you're at work. Mm-hmm. And that, that line in the sand, I don't think works for most families anymore. Um, so at Sakara, after I became a mother, I really tried to help create this culture of you get to be a mom at work too. Like there, you don't have to, obviously we also have to do our work and, you know, there's like times where it might not be appropriate, but for the most part, like work, home, parenthood kind of have to mix and mingle and blend. I think in order to do it healthfully, like in a healthy way for yourself and for your children. Yeah. I think it's also about how can you work in a different way, right? Because I think it was one of your podcasts maybe where was it, it wasn't Alisa Fiti, it was someone else actually who said um, that men and women work on a different sort of clock, like when it comes to hormones. Oh, yeah, that was Elisa Vitti, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was so interesting as well because that's also a way where you can work in a different way, right? Or, yeah. Yeah, and and can we allow space for that, mm-hmm. you know, as business leaders? Like, can we allow space for employees' rhythms to look different depending on, you know, man, woman, lifestyle choices, etc.? Um, and I think the answer is yes. And, and by the way, we, you know, the, the parents on our team are by far in a way, you know, getting the most work done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when you become a parent, um, you start to take time really seriously because I know that I want to be home with my daughter before she goes to bed. So I know that I need to get X, Y, Z done before I can do that. And so you just become much more efficient and, you know, what might've taken you an hour before now you, you decide, okay, this, I'm going to do this in a half hour. Yeah. So you know, it might not be longer hours at the office, um, but I think it's better hours. Yeah. That's so interesting actually, because I interviewed this Dutch politician recently. Uh-huh. She felt that she um got this great career because of her children and not in spite of them. And I thought it's so interesting because I feel like when hiring like new people, it's always like, oh, are you maybe going to have a child? But you can't ask that legally, of course. But yeah, yeah, you can actually be great at your job because you have children, of course. Right. You can actually be better at your job. Yeah. And I I think it makes you a better leader. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think being a parent, um, can manifest in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you identify as a parent, then you are one, um, however that looks for you and your family. And I think that there are just so many lessons in parenthood that you can bring to the workplace. You know, it's taught me, my daughter's taught me so much, but one is to be a better listener than a talker. Mm. And that is such an important skill in the workplace to just really learn how to listen, to think more about 
um, someone else's needs in a conversation than your own. Um, and, you know, that's one of a thousand things I feel like that my daughter has taught me that I get to bring to the workplace. Yeah, that's beautiful. What are some of the other things that she taught you? If you could like just pick one or two. Yeah. Um, another thing is um, I don't think I really understood what it was to live in the moment before I had her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think I, like I, I tried and I was like grasping at this concept. But when you have a child, you watch them live in the moment and watching that helped me understand and then mirror that. So I I think we're taught, especially in this day and age, that, you know, efficiency and multitasking is all okay, but it's not. Actually, enjoying the moment means you stop and you take whatever is in front of you in. And I really, really tried to do that with her to not, you know, always be on my phone when she's playing to sometimes just watch her play and, and be there with her and not need to be like getting something done. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is she actually just recently hurt herself and which was really the first time it was actually just a few days ago and it was really scary. She fell. We're not exactly sure what happened, but she, she like won't put weight on her left leg. So obviously we've seen a bunch of doctors and we're going to go get an x-ray, but she can't, she won't walk. So she's like back to scooting around. Um, Obviously it's been incredibly difficult and sad, but on the other hand, and like, we think she'll be fine. We don't think it's a fracture. We think it's just a sprained ankle, but what's been really beautiful is like, she doesn't care. Oh yeah. (laughs) She's not like, She's not like in the corner moping because she can't walk. Yeah. She just started scooting, you know, and she's like, you know, happy as can be scooting around, like chasing the dog on her butt. And, you know, yeah. and it's like where I'm like in the corner crying, you know, because like I feel so bad for her. Yeah. But like she doesn't feel bad for herself. She's just like, okay, like life threw this at me. Like I'll, I'll move this way. Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's really beautiful to, to watch her just be able to take life in mm-hmm. and, not, you know, not like take it in, in a way where it consumes her, but to, she just like rises above things in this really beautiful way. That's really beautiful. And it's also really beautiful for you, I can imagine, because it's kind of like, you can't always protect her. So at some point you got to have to let her go. And it's kind of like an early lesson maybe, but that's also very valuable. I think. I haven't learned that one yet. (laughs) Now it's so funny that we're doing the podcast this week because you know, she's been, I've been carrying her. I'm also, well, actually I haven't announced this yet, but, um, I'm pregnant with second. Oh, congratulations. And so I've been trying to figure out like art to pop and carrying her. And like, now I'm just wearing the bottom belt really low. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was starting to carry her less and less because she's just, she can like walk really well. Now she can run, she can walk for distances, but now that her ankle is hurt, I've been carrying her a lot more, which has been like actually really nice the past few days. Just like being able, it feels like the last time I'm going to be able to really carry her because one, my bum's yeah. going to be too big. And then eventually I'll be carrying the little one and she'll be walking around or in the stroller. So I'm, I'm grateful that to, it kind of feels like this last chapter where she gets to be my little baby yeah oh, that's beautiful yeah and talking about rd pop how did you and anna actually connect it was over instagram i think yeah um 
Yeah, it was. And I mean, she's just so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she's so chic. Yeah. Um, and she sent me a carrier and she sent it to me like right when my little one was born. I, and I didn't really understand like the difference, like obviously hers are so much more beautiful than a traditional carrier, but I didn't really understand the role that a carrier was going to play in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she got a little older, like I think by like six, eight weeks, I was just carrying her all the time. And I tried, I had been gifted like, you know, for the baby shower, I'd been gifted several other carriers. So I tried them all just to see which one felt best. And hers just felt the best for so many reasons. One, like ergonomically, they just feel good. Like I never, I never get an achy back. I'm still carrying her at two years old. Um, I carried her all through Sedona on like miles and miles of hikes. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, like I just, and then on top of that, like her carriers are just so beautiful. I felt like I didn't have to be this like frumpy mom carrying in like this ugly carrier with like baby giraffes on it, you know, like mm-hmm. I didn't, like I could still be Yourself. myself and express myself yeah. as a mother. Um, and so her carriers had a huge impact on, on how I mothered. Yeah. Um, and like, I didn't know when she sent it to me, like how grateful and what a huge impact it was going to have on my life. Yeah. That's also really interesting when it comes to like identity. How have you experienced this when you became a mom? Was it like difficult for you? Like who, who am I now? How did that process go for you? No, you know, it, it really wasn't. I just kind of like, Maybe number two will be different, but mm-hmm. for number one, it was kind of like I dived into the deep end yeah. and I didn't want to, I never looked back. So, and I think that was because I, you know, my, I, I still get to go to work and I still got to have a lot of my life, which I'm grateful for. Like I, I could totally picture myself being a stay at home mom also, mm-hmm. um, But I do think that one of the reasons that it really worked for me was because I actually didn't have to give up a lot. Um, My husband, I'm very fortunate. He is in nightlife, but, you know, doesn't really have to be there all the time. So he actually stays home with her during the day while I go to work. And he's lucky that he owns it, so he doesn't have to be there all the time. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so he really took over the, the kind of like nine to five with her. So I think like maintaining a sense of self is hard as a mother Mm -hmm. and where it used to come really naturally because it was just what I did and who I was. I think you have to put a little more effort into it as a mother because you can become all consumed by just being a mother. Like it's so easy, Mm -hmm. I think, for mothers to do that. And I think maintaining something that feels like just yours and not your kids and not your husband's is really important. Yeah, I can totally imagine. Becoming a mom also comes with physical changes, of course. How did you experience this transformation? I mean, the first like half of pregnancy is, especially your first one, <clears throat> because everything's so unknown. Mm-hmm. It was hard. It definitely, it definitely brought up some of those old feelings. Um, I actually wrote a piece about it for Well and Good about what it meant to like mourn your maiden self and mourn your maiden body Mm. and how 
it felt like there was a lot of shame around that because it meant that somehow like I didn't want to be a mother and that wasn't the case. Like I think it's okay to mourn who you were, but also make space for who you will become. Yeah. Um, but you know, the first pregnancy, especially cause you don't know what your body's going to look like. You don't know, <laughs> you know, anything was hard emotionally because it's also just like that awkward phase where you don't get to walk around with a bump. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what I had before, but yeah. I kind of thought you were just pregnant and you had a bump, Yeah, but no, it takes, it takes a while. So it was like, it was just awkward finding. It's like the minute you finally get used to how you look, then you're like bigger. And so the things that you were wearing, you know, you lose a lot of your identity. It's like the things that you reached for in your closet that really feel like you no longer fit. So then you find the next thing and then you grow out of that. And so it's just constantly, I think it's this huge lesson in change and being okay with change because you have to, once you have a child. So I think that's kind of like the first lesson is just get comfortable with never being comfortable. Yeah. Um, Now the, the second, um, has been a little easier in terms of the body stuff because I, um, like I know how to get back to feeling good in my body. Um, and I think just being really gentle with ourselves, not putting like a time stamp on when we should fit back into our genes, but just eating well, taking care of ourselves, resting, doing what feels good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think being that gentle is, is the secret. Um, and luckily I allowed that for myself after my first. So I'm trying to make sure I just hold space for that being that gentle with myself during this one, but also the second you pop much earlier. (laughs) So, so in that way, it's, it's been a little easier where like, I'm, you know, I'm still quite early. I'm early in the second trimester, but I, um, like I look very pregnant. Yeah. Um, but the others, there's been other things that have been harder. You know, when you're, when you're pregnant with your first, you get to sleep in and, (laughs) you know, take it easy and really just, experience what pregnancy feels like but you know some days I just I forget I'm pregnant and I'm running around and I have a toddler and it's it's much less rest so yeah you know things that are harder too and how did it actually affect your romantic relationship with your partner just being a mom both being parents yeah it's you know in a lot of ways it's been incredibly bonding Mm -hmm. like many many ways I mean you create life together and you both have never done this before. And it's, it's so awesome and incredible and surreal um, that bonds you in a way that nothing else can. Um, I think similar to how you have to be more diligent about um, maintaining a sense of self, you have to be more diligent about maintaining a sense of your coupledom and your love for each other like your romantic love, because it's so consuming to be a new parent mm-hmm. that you can easily just fool yourselves into thinking like, cause you spend every evening together that you're still okay. So we, you know, we learned the hard way that if you don't make that space that you start to just like harbor this secret anger at each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, and if, and you have to like squash it really fast and you have to say like, okay, this is, we you don't, it's almost like you don't even realize that it's happening until it like bubbles over. Mm-hmm. So that was a really big lesson for us for the first was you have to, like, this is the idea of it takes a village. 
when you don't rely on the village to help you bring up your children, it puts way too much pressure on two people. Yep. And I can't even speak to single parents. Like my mom was a single, I have no idea how people do it as a yeah. single parent. Like, really. um, so, you know, we, we've learned that we have to rely on friends so we can go on a date night or a babysitter. You know, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, have to make that extra effort to maintain who we were before we were parents. And also in Sakara Life, you talk about sexuality versus sensuality. Like, what would you say is like the difference between the two for you personally as well? Um, yeah, that was actually one of our most popular podcast episodes. We um, had Hani on or as a guest who's a sensuality coach. She's actually the godmother to my child too. Oh, she is. Yeah. Um, that was a really nice podcast as well. It was so nice. Yeah. yeah she's incredible. Um, I think sexuality is like this idea of being turned on in the world. So obviously there are like the obvious ways and being attracted to people, but there's also, and Hani talks a lot about this. There's also the little things like taking a moment to really enjoy your cup of coffee, to really take it in that pleasure and sexuality are much broader than I think most people think they can be. Mm -hmm, And then I think sensuality is this idea of self-expression and being seen in the world. So yeah, I think sensuality is like this manifestation of how do you express yourself sexually and how do you feel seen in the world? And you also wrote this article, which I thought was really interesting as well. Is it okay to be sexy and a mother? And it's so interesting because you feel like society kind of still struggles with that in a way, or maybe mothers themselves even like, yeah, not to generalize, but yeah. 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 Um, I think it's gotten better. I think actually Instagram has helped with that, even though in some ways I think it's also hurt because I think people can just put out the the highlight reel um, and then people feel like they're not living up to that. Then they're not a good mother. They're not sexier, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the Madonna complex is – can you be a sexual being but also be someone's mother? And can you be sexy in the eyes of your partner if you're also the mother to their children? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the answer is absolutely yes. Yep. But I think in, in, in contemporary culture and especially historical culture, the answer has been a lot of times no, that you kind of have to fulfill a role and that writing the line between the two is counterculture. Hmm. Um, so I think, again, that just is making sure you maintain the space for self. Um, and a lot of times I think it's extra hard for women to ride the line between motherhood and like sexual empowerment uh, because we often don't put our pleasure first. Mm-hmm. So we put the happiness of our children, the happiness of our family, work, all these other things first. And when we do that, we are admitting that we're not worthy of feeling good and experiencing pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I think in order to really, in order to expect the world to see you as both a mother and a sexual being, I think we have to 
do the work to see ourselves that way as well. People just have so many identities in themselves already. It's like you're never one thing and you're always changing. Exactly. And Hani talks a lot about that in that episode because I think we recorded the episode like eight weeks after she'd become a mother. Oh, um, yeah. And she talked a lot about how your body does change after kids. Like it does. It changes, you know, even if it's not like in this way that somebody can physically see, which, you know, my body definitely changed in a physical way like this, that, you know, my husband can see, but Mm -hmm. it changes in this, like your relationship to it changes. And therefore how you experience sexuality in the world transforms. And we don't talk about that a lot. We don't talk about what is the difference between like your maiden self pre-children and your relationship to sexuality? And then how does it transform and how do we hold space for that transformation from being maiden to mother? Yeah. And that's so important to talk about it more, just to let more people share their experiences with it, of course. Yeah. So they have the expectation that it should be the same because it shouldn't. And Hani talks a lot about how she feels like becoming a mother has, you know, she's obviously one of few women I know that are very in touch with their sensuality, sexuality, and body. Yeah. And she said that like after having kids, it allowed her to a reason to get to know her body all over again. Yeah. Which was a gift. She's also like, it's just so nice to hear her speak. It's really like, like sex to her is like eating something really beautiful or it's like such a natural, yeah. yeah. Of course it's natural for all of us, but she's like really sensual also in the way she speaks. And exactly. yeah. Yeah, she's not she's not apologetic for experiencing pleasure in the world. Mm-hmm. So if sitting down, you know, she uses this example of like sitting down and having a cup of coffee can be a sexual pleasurable experience and she's not going to, like rush to have it because she's with friends or she's not going to apologize for taking a moment to stop and allow herself to take in that pleasure, Yeah, which I think a lot of, especially women would normally apologize for in some way or the other, like they either wouldn't allow themselves the time or the space to do it, or they'd be with friends. So they'd feel shy about it or whatever it is. But her motto is really like, if you know that you are worthy, then you are worthy of experiencing as much pleasure as you want. That's beautiful. It's also interesting when you talk about being unapologetic because I just listened to your podcast this morning with... Oh, Danny Katz, yeah. And it was about uh, quantum language. Yes. Yeah, she says about like how women are more inclined to say sorry a lot. Yeah, also maybe mothers are more inclined to just say sorry and to excuse themselves more or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We feel like we have to be sorry more often. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's it's changing that and and remembering that the words that we use in the world are reflective of how our, our beliefs. Remembering that the words that we use in the world are reflective of how our, our beliefs. Totally. Have you actually ever experienced mom guilt yourself or do you feel like... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not really. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't experience it in terms of like, oh, I should be with her more often. Um, And maybe that's because we're fortunate that my husband gets to watch her during the day. So I feel like she's with a parent. Um, I don't I can't speak to if that would change if we had a nanny. Mm -hmm. Um, It might. I feel more mom guilt around um, 
like making sure that I'm teaching her things. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, a day will go by and I'm like, I don't know if, you know, I sat down and like taught her the ABCs or, you know, ridiculous things like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, life is, she's just learning by like experiencing life right now. Um, so I have some guilt around making sure that I'm giving her the opportunity to take in as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Like I put a lot of pressure on myself to do that. Um, there's also, I mean, my God, like I own a nutrition company and like I cannot get my child to eat well. So oh, really? <laughs> there's like, there's a lot of guilt around that. I mean, she eats, she eats really well, but obviously just like not to what like I would like her to eat. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, it's, I can't, I can't tell her what to eat. You know, she's her own person. She's her own human. And all I can do is exemplify and then offer her healthy things. Um, and if in the end she eats more, you know, pasta every night for dinner, (laughs) that's the only thing to eat. Like, I just have to, like I can, I I've been really careful to make sure she doesn't see my stress because I don't want her to have a weird thing about food. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to allow space for her to like listen to what she wants and just make sure that I do my job really well, which is making sure what's around her like as options are as healthy as possible. And you also feel a lot of like mom guilt or shaming on social media. You feel like when you look at mothers or maybe. You get into heated discussions about motherhood because you have like a huge following, of course, and uh, fellow moms follow you as well. I was wondering. Um, you know, for the, I would say actually for the most part, mothers are some of the most supportive, empathetic mm-hmm. group of individuals that I've ever come across on social media Yeah, um, and allow a lot of space for however you want to parent or, you know, offer advice, but not in a way of like, this is what you should do, but like, here's what worked for me. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff like, um, when I, when occasionally like a few months ago, I posted something about how, yes, I've worked through a lot of my body stuff, but sometimes it's still there. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes like six months postpartum and I get in a bikini, like sometimes I don't feel good, even though 95% of the time I do. And that is okay. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to be the person in the world that says, yeah, I always feel great. And you should too. It's like, it's okay that we ebb and flow. Um, but that pissed a lot of people off, I think, because they didn't see my flaws. So they felt like oh, yeah. I didn't have a right to see my own. Um, so that was something I was really championing is that I didn't post that to get compliments. I posted it to share my personal journey in case anybody out there was not feeling great too. So sometimes I think, um, especially when it pertains to like postpartum bodies, mm-hmm. it can trigger a lot of insecurities and anger in in us. Um, so that's really the only place where I've seen people not be as supportive as I think we could be of each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you follow Melissa Wood. She's great. We actually have known each other for like 15 years. We both were in the same acting class together <laughs> like so many years ago. Yeah. She's been, you know, blowing up over here in the States and 
I saw she just posted something similar where like she did like putting on a bikini and like her kids were running around her and she was like doing this you know really like sexual dance but she looked great and she looked like she was having fun yeah a couple people you know posted like that's not a good example for your children Mm -hmm. and you know clearly it just triggered something for them yeah like that's not what I look like um you're telling your kids that's what people should like look like and it's like that's not the case Mm -hmm. like just because she has built a body that she feels good in and feels like it's okay to to um to like embody that and to set that example that doesn't mean that she's telling her children you have to look like this in order to be valued in the world so Mm -hmm. yeah I think you know for the most part where mothers are very supportive but I think sometimes we can be triggered more than other groups of people Maybe it's not even mothers amongst each other, but also how society views mothers because yeah. you're also very outspoken when it comes to like breastfeeding in public, of course. Um, and Anna as well, definitely she is. Yeah. Do you feel it's still like kind of frowned upon in the States or do you feel like it's kind of changed already? You know, I don't think I'm a good person to ask because I couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. And that's good actually. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that most of Manhattan has seen my nipples and I just don't care. Yeah. You know, if it makes somebody uncomfortable, then they don't have to look. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm feeding my child. It's my business. I'm never like walking around topless. Um, it's like, it's respectable and like I'm in my own space and I think every mother has the right to feed her child no matter where she is. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I don't even notice. I think sometimes it makes my husband uncomfortable how free I am with it because like he, I think he's more cognizant of like men watching or, you know, like I'll feed her on the subway and I really don't care if a guy's looking over. Like I just, it doesn't feel like a sexual interaction. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me at all. Um, But he's definitely more aware of it. But I think, I've never had somebody like say something to me ever. Yeah. Uh, And like, I was just in, I still breastfeed and I was just in Sedona, which is very progressive, but also is Arizona. Yeah. Um, So there's people that are less so. So I was wondering if maybe I was going to like get any pushback from anyone. And I didn't, nobody ever said anything. So, yeah. And how do you actually view the system in America versus Europe? Because, in Europe, of course, we get more paid leave. And I, I think in, in the US, you don't have any paid leave, right? Like, how do you view these? Or do you do, you, do, you do get those? Uh, it's state by state, but yeah, you do. Okay. So like in New York, you get six weeks. Um, but at, at Saqqara, we give three months oh, paid. Yeah. And we also offer unlimited vacation. So if you need more time, you can take more time. Um, so it kind of depends on the company, I guess, that you work for. It's, it very much depends on the company. Yeah. Um, but it's tough, you know, it's like you, even if you get three months paid leave, a lot of women feel that it, it sets them back in their career. Mm -hmm. So you can take the leave, but then when you come back, are you going to get the promotion that you deserve as quickly or like, are you, is it as if you haven't been at work for three months and, you know, none of your efforts like matter, you kind of have to start over. So it's definitely far from perfect. Um, But I think it's really important. And I actually think 
people should talk about like pregnancy leave too. Mm-hmm. I think I think we need to have more reverence for birth and um, hold more space for what it means to bring a human into the world. And like, you know, our head of finance was like calling us as she was in labor, trying to like, you know, tie up loose ends. Oh wow! And and I was like, you you can't like it's so important that we go within. It's so important that we, um, that we take the time to get ready for what birth means. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter the outcome, C-section, epidural, it doesn't matter. It just matters that you're in a good mental place, feeling ready to like go through this transition in life. So yeah, I even think a few weeks before, even if it's not like fully off, I mean, right now everyone's working from home, but what I did before I had my first was I took three weeks before my due date um, and I worked from home. Yeah. And just doing that felt, felt really important because you don't want to run into labor, like stressed and hitting deadlines, you know? But then of course it's, it's like, you're lucky, I guess, if you work at the right company that really values that, but like, what kind of change would you hope for the future when it comes to like society and motherhood, uh, maybe policies around motherhood when it comes to like the government, or do you think it should come more from companies, from individuals? It's a big question. I think in America, it's going to have to come from companies. Like mm-hmm. the, our government's just too far behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say like my number one wish is actually more on the medical side. Mm. And my wish is for every woman to have a medical caregiver. So whether that's an OBGYN or a midwife that believes that your body can give birth. Most women in America are met with this idea that birth is a very scary, very traumatic thing that will most likely have to be intervened and fixed. Mm-hmm. And it's not an empowering experience. Um, and, you know, most women that give birth can give birth. You know, even in the movies, like it's portrayed as this thing where most of the time when they show birth in movies, the mother dies, Um, you know, and like, if she doesn't, it looks like the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. Like they just, it's set up in this narrative of like an awful thing and it's not. And I think if we could learn, even as women, we haven't been taught that our bodies are powerful enough to bring life into this world um, without intervention. Yeah. And I read this in some book, I I don't remember which one, but it said like, until we have reverence for mothers and for mother's ability to birth children, like we'll never have reverence for mother earth. Mm -hmm. So like it starts with the mothers, it starts with respecting a mother's physical capabilities, mental, emotional, spiritual capabilities to bring life into this world before we'll even be able to consider what it means to save this planet. That like respecting our mothers and then the ultimate mother like go hand in hand. That's beautiful. Yeah. As a final question, what would you hope motherhood, parenthood and society's approach to this to have shifted 25 years from now? (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think, um, definitely reverence around birth for both mother and father. Mm -hmm. Like how does the mother learn how to be, how to have an empowered experience? How does the father learn how to have an empowered experience and support 
the mother. Um, and then I think once you bring life into this world, learning what it means to, to create a village and rely on that village for help. I think oftentimes, especially mothers, mm-hmm. yeah. if you ask them if they're okay, like never ask a mother if she's okay because she's just going to tell you yes. <laughs> never never say, what can I do for you? Because she's just going to say nothing. Um, and I want that to change. Like I want us all to be able to say, you know what? I'm not doing well today. Like my kid is really annoying me and I just want to yeah. take a nap and, you know, whatever your thing is and for that to be okay and not reflective of how you are as a parent. Um, and then for us to rely on each other when we say, hey, like, do you need help today? Can I come over and just help you fold laundry and do some dishes? Yeah. That we would dare to say yes. That we would dare to say, like, yeah, I would love your help. Could you please come over? Um, instead of it feeling like uh, like we're burdening people. Most of the time when people ask if they can help, it's because they want to. And it would actually make them feel good to help. And for whatever reason, we've been made to feel or taught to feel that mm-hmm. if we say yes for help, that we're weak or that we're not a good parent or that we're not doing things right. So I think changing that changes the this idea of the family unit and the pressure that it puts on parents to raise perfect children. I totally get that. And I guess I, I guess it's all about community really. And I guess I can imagine also when it comes to health and food, it could be way more community based really. Yeah, exactly. And rely on, you know, when we went to Sedona, we had a dear friend join us and just having him there even though he never like babysat or mm-hmm. just having one other person that occasionally like she'd run over to and sit with for 15 minutes really, really made a huge difference. Yeah. And so it's just the little things. It's just, you know, not having the pressure constantly be, okay, mom's turn, dad turn, mom turn, dad turn, and just having a variety of people around to help take that pressure off. Yeah. That's so, so important. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for for doing this interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to know more about Anna's idea of the new motherhood, head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this. Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, open up your mind in some way. Until next time.